0: Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If that sounds like the sort of party you'd like to be invited to, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com where you can find interviews with some of the finest minds in and around product management, binge the back catalogue, subscribe on your favourite podcast app or share with your friends. And if you fancy popping some spare change into my tip jar to help with hosting costs, there's a handy donation link right up the top. On tonight's episode, we talk about moving from established tech companies with all their lovely processes and norms and creating your own startup and having to work it all out for yourself. We talk about the product principles you should stick to, those you can work out as you go along, and some of the challenges of starting a company with a founder who lives 10,000 miles away. We also talk about the similarities between improv comedy and product management, and how we might go from status quo to idea all the way through to the punchline. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Amog Sardner. Amog's a former Atlassian and Intercom product manager turned company founder who's currently straddling about 500 time zones in his day job. When he can get some sleep, Amog's also a keen performer and loves to take that MVP mentality onto the stage as an improv comedian. Amog thinks there's a lot for product managers to learn from comedy, which certainly explains Jira, has a few things to say about product principles and how all of us product folks should be a little bit kinder to ourselves. I can assure you I'm giving myself a hug as we speak. Hi Amog, how are you tonight?
1: Going good, going good, feeling fresh, ready to talk.
0: So, first things first, you are one of the co-founders at Easel, based out in Australia, Mm -hmm. with a team in Ireland as far as I'm aware. But before we talk about your time zones, what problem does Easel solve for me?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the problem's pretty universal in some sense. I think we've all kind of struggled to find the documents that we need to get a job done. Uh, you know, the classic example we tend to use is you can find Obama's shoe size on Google in a few seconds. But then finding your own, uh, you know, meeting notes from yesterday, somehow that ends up taking (laughs) a bit longer. It's pretty obviously broken, right? Yeah. And uh, that was a pain we felt at Intercom. I felt it at Atlassian uh, as well. And, you know, things sort of spun off from there. It just felt like someone had to fix this. And it felt like there was a huge business to be made fixing it. And that's sort of where Easel came about.
0: So, how are you fixing that specifically? Like, are you some kind of meta search engine that you can put across all your documents and it sort of searches inside and categorizes them and lets you find that out? Or is there some other much more complicated way to describe that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that, that sort of sums it up. I think so. We, we bring all the documents that you have across all your different apps uh, right in your browser's new tab. So, you know, whether it's your project brief in Google Docs or a mirror board that you use for brainstorming or a design in Figma. You can sort of search across all your work documents right in your browser new tab. And the the sort of magical thing that we do is that it all kind of works without any setup. So you simply install Easel, and it actually uses your browser history to do sort of the heavy lifting and just get set up in just seconds, really. And uh, yeah, the idea is that you can now start to build a shared source of truth for your teams, uh, you know, with all the documents uh, and folders that you've got. In some sense, automatically organized inside easel, and that's sort of like the other big thing that we're pushing for is just automatically organizing everything. Um, we're a firm believers that a lot of this stuff, you know, a lot of the existing solutions that are out there today. Because if you think about it, right, like it's, it's not a problem we haven't tried to solve before. Yeah, we try to organize things into Google Drive folders or Notion workspaces or console you know, spaces, etc. Uh, you know, pin things on Slack threads, all kinds of things. Right, uh, these things are really hard to keep up to date. Yep. And so really, uh, we think that the, the solution in this space sort of just needs to work. It doesn't need to depend on you know your colleague or you remembering to put that one thing in that one place. It just sort of needs to work as you work. And uh, yeah, that's what we're doing.
0: Uh, sounds good. And if you can save us from the hell of pinned Slack threads or random Slack conversations, <laughs> which basically become specifications and you have to try and find them using Slack search, which isn't that great either. I mean... Do you pull in Slack stuff as well? Can you save us on that?
1: Yeah. So right now, Easel is only going to work with things inside the browser. So if you use Slack inside the browser, then uh, it can work with Slack as well. I think chances are people use the the web app natively with Slack. I think there's there's definitely an argument to be made that we'll plug into that as well. There you go. I think in theory, any link that you're passing off on Slack is then being accessed inside the browser. So and, and we yeah. it will then pull it from the browser as well. So so I think in, in theory, we haven't really encountered it as a, as a major problem mm-hmm. uh, yet that people are asking for, that easel users are asking for, but yeah,
0: who knows? Oh, fair enough. But you are talking about users there, so that assumes that you have some. So you're nearly two years into the mission, I think. So mm-hmm. would you say that you've actually got product market fit yet or is that still a kind of early adopter thing where you've got a few passionate, people that are just trying it out like how's that going for you
1: i think we've got product market fit i think i can confidently say that so we we've got uh you know people uh, who've been using us every day for you know a long long time now uh we've got a pretty healthy retention i mean i think we've got like some cool logos that we've landed users in like uh, spotify canva and the like But, but i think even beyond that i think anecdotally what screams to me product market fit is that hey, you know, people have changed jobs and they've brought Easel with them. They've changed laptops and they right, yeah. you know, remember to install Easel. When Easel doesn't work, they fiercely complain, right? I, th- I think these sort of battle <laughs> signals really make me feel like, okay, cool. We've got product market fit with the heart of the app uh, today.
0: Yep. So that's interesting. And are you selling then into the companies like a B2B play or people kind of getting it on their credit cards, product-led growth styley, and just taking it with them as a kind of Almost like bring your own app type thing to their, to their jobs.
1: Yeah. I think what you're touching on is pretty much the boundaries of where we are today. So we've got this thing that people tend to use to find documents and they use that themselves and they use that daily. We're now at a point where uh, we need to get distribution, right? Uh, not enough yeah. people know about it. When they know about it, they stick around, but not enough people know about it. And so that's what we're trying to crack. We're building some team features. The idea is to, like you said, use that product-led growth. It's a bit of a buzzword, I think, buzz phrase in some <laughs> sense now. But, um, but yeah, uh, it, it, there's some credibility to it. So, so I think the idea really is that uh, we will uh, grow virally inside teams where one person starts using easel and then uh, they have some team features that unlock collaboration. And, uh, yeah, we're going to be heading into that B2B space and monetizing with these team plans.
0: There you go. Going up, market. But you touched on it earlier, and we touched on it earlier that you're working very distributedly at the moment. So, your co founder is from Ireland, I think, and I believe still lives in Ireland. Uh, You're in Australia, Mm. as we probably could have guessed. But that's (laughs) like a 10 hour time difference or something like that. I guess that depends also on the time of year and daylight savings and all that sort of stuff as well. So, that can't be easy. I know we were chatting before this that you yeah, having meetings in their mornings and your evenings. And that's something that a lot of people have to put up with when they're working for global organizations or distributed organizations. But from your perspective, like how's that going? And do you have any top tips for distributed founding teams to actually make this stuff work?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think Early stage startup life is sort of hard enough on its own. I think you're working so, so closely <laughs> with someone. There is so much uncertainty. Uh, you're dealing with, yeah, pretty high intense situations. So yeah, I think this whole asynchronous, I guess, adds another layer of, of fun, let's say for us. <laughs> I think we've used it to our advantage in some ways. I would say we've really pushed to develop this async work culture. You know, when COVID came around, it really weirdly didn't affect how we were operating in some sense, like we were doing before it became cool. Yeah, uh, is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> now, <laughs> I, 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 I think essentially we have really built out the processes uh, in a way that we can kind of hire anywhere. I think as a company, uh, we're still really small, but even you know, give you an example, we're looking to hire another engineer right now, and uh, we we have a uh, you know, Kevin who's on the team who's an engineer, and he's based in Paris. But we're looking to hire another engineer now. And you know, we're interviewing people from all over the place, you know even East Coast, US. So uh, I think just generally, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that, hey, there are some perks to this. I think it just means that we're super open <laughs> when it comes to uh, talent is one of them. I think another one is uh, we're really, by definition, anti-meeting would be a big one. Yep. I think uh, I bet a lot of the listeners probably can empathize with the day Jam packed with lots of meetings. <laughs> uh, I think that was settling my life at Alassian. but uh, yeah, I, I mean, by definition, we don't have that much overlap. We need to make the most of that when we do, yeah. uh, with reasonable hours, and and so we optimize a lot towards making decisions offline uh, on Slack or you know on documents, etc. So yeah, I'd say that that's another one. But but I guess to your second part around tips for founders uh, that are starting their journey into into these things, and uh, I guess early stage teams that are working really async. I think my biggest tip would be to get really good at uh, writing, I guess, writing and reading. And it sounds super elementary. Yep. But I think there's a lot we can do async than we give credit for. And so uh, I, I think I, I'm certainly someone like that. Like, I think I default to, hey, can we just talk about this really quickly? But I think not being able to do that forces me to get clarity of thought. Yeah. Because I na- now need to write down my thoughts. And then it's also forcing me to get really good at reading because a misunderstanding is a, a lot of a friction because if I misunderstand you, then I reply wrongly. Now I wait for your reply, and it just all sort of compounds. So it's really forcing me to learn how to read really well as well uh, and share context and empathize with you know the readers of my message, right? So I'm working on something, but my teammates are working on something else, so I need to be confident yeah. that I'm empathizing with their point of view when I'm writing Uh, and sharing enough context etc so yeah i think the main tip would be like get really good at writing and reading i guess it sounds simple enough but
0: yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think you'd be surprised i think it's also refreshing in the wake of the recent elon musk go back to work memo that there's people out there still fighting a good fight as well but you touched on it just then as well like you've worked for a couple of decent sized product companies well-known product companies you've gone from presumably a fairly structured working environment to basically being able to make your own rules and kind of make things up on the fly a little bit if you really want to. So how's that been as a transition for you, like moving away from that structured, everything being defined for you and and kind of just being able to do what you want? Was that an easy transition for you?
1: I think you're touching on, I would say, the biggest difference between early stage life and Waiting for, I think Atlassian is a good example because they're even bigger than a I think yeah. the level of uncertainty that we have, right? I think Des Trainer actually from a I think used this on some PM offsite, this analogy where, you know, you're in a house and uh, imagine, you know, the foundations, you have house inside the house, you have furniture and so on. And you do different things to the house at different cadences, right? You change the furniture of the house, maybe uh, every couple of years i guess maybe paint even uh, in a longer time frame more years let's say go by before you repaint the house the foundations probably uh, you know in some sense never change or maybe they change when you demolish the house altogether <laughs> there's something extreme there uh, but then of course you have on the other end of the spectrum you have some things inside the house uh, like you know the position of the headlamp etc which you could change you know more regularly obviously so i think the thing i'm trying to get at is that i think you've got these this this framework and you've got different things that you're challenging at different cadences and you have that inside a company it's at a there were certain foundations there were certain ways of working there were certain things about the product i wasn't going to suddenly question and be like oh you know this jira software thing gang like i don't know if we should be doing this <laughs> uh, it was it was a given right it was a given like, oh this come is on a you mini- should have
0: you should have asked that question though. <laughs>
1: I mean, uh, have you seen the market cap? I, I think, I mean, until recently at least, I guess. I can't use that argument anymore, I think. Uh, but Yeah, well. <laughs> obviously, there are some things you can't question. And then, yeah, the things I was questioning were, I think, uh, at a much uh, smaller scale. And that's totally not the case inside of life, right? Like, there is no framework. There is no house. I'm building the damn house as we're talking. And it's all just like, yeah. what is really something we can question? And what is something we shouldn't question? What is something... We shouldn't be, you know, questioning and reinventing the wheel on. And that was something we really struggled with. I think uh, it's it's tough. I think it's uh, especially tough if you haven't worked with the the people before you uh, start your early stage thing. And I've seen this pattern a few times because I've seen uh, my friends now, like uh, a few of the ex-Atlassian. Actually, those are the people I, I tend to come in with here uh, yeah, because they <laughs> work in my time zones, unlike my own colleagues. But, yeah, so they they you know, the a few of them uh, are ex Atlassian and then it's just meant that their culture, their ways of working has just sort of got this Atlassian flavor to it. And so they kind of almost assume this foundation to a lot of what they're doing. Yeah. Whereas my co founder, I, I worked with one of them, but there was there were other teammates who I haven't worked with before. And uh there was a lot of I'd say questioning things that I was otherwise assuming as true. Uh, and so yeah, I think I think this level of layers of uncertainty is probably one of the toughest thing you know, in early stage start of life. And you need to kind of really confidently pull insights and, and you know, cement some things as truth. I say cement them as truth because, uh, you know, you can still question them, but the cadence of questioning can't be every week, right? There are some things you need to kind of go, <laughs> actually, this is kind of it, and we're not going to question this every day, right? Because we have all these other things we're going to... If you're going to question everything every day, then we're not going to make anywhere any progress, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you you kind of build layers of uh, confidence, layers of truth with varying degrees of confidence and varying degrees of cadences of of how much you question them and kind of progress from there. So that's slowly been how we built these um, foundations, I would say, with Easel.
0: Absolutely. That sounds fair enough and obviously
1: Mm.
0: kind of energizing in some ways and probably pretty Mm -hmm. stressful in other ways. But you gave a talk at an Australian product tank event a while back where you talked about, applying nuance to product principles. Now, that touches a lot on some of the stuff you just talked about, like, you know, what you question and how often you question it and how there's no truth, or there's only the truth that you make. And that sort of attitude, I guess, makes a lot of sense. But again, you've worked for some pretty decent companies who, as you have said, had these standardized processes, norms, principles, and so forth. So when you're talking about applying nuance to product principles, like, where do you start? Like, Going back to the house analogy, if you've kind of got to work out the basic plans, like the core architecture, like where the windows and the doors are going to go and stuff like that, where do you start and how principled do you have to be for how long before you can start being flexible as we've kind of touched on?
1: I think when it comes to applying principles, I think there are probably only a finite set of really, really fundamental things that you need to be doing all the time. I would actually struggle to even articulate what those are. Uh, you know, what are those <laughs> principles? I mean, it's a it's a thing where you see, right? Like people will explain what they did and uh, you know the principle that they drew from it, but then there's always a little asterisk and a caveat that oh, actually, this may not apply to you, or actually, in these situations, or, or, you know, you should apply your own nuance, whether it makes sense or not, etc. So, so you know, if you get a bit abstract, what are the most foundational? always apply kind of product principles that we have and i would struggle to actually give you one and i think i think one that does come to mind and it's a bit too uh, meta in some sense for some people i would say <laughs> which i think is fair enough would be uh, really that product is uh, the discovery of truth and, and this is, is perhaps not even a principle but i think it's just a way of approaching product i think that holds true and i don't think there's any caveat to this so this is a a stone-cold fact that I don't think is debatable in some sense. I think product is a discovery of truth. And so what do I mean by that? I think that a lot of product work is essentially trying to understand the real problems that people have, uh, You know, not the problems we want them to have, or we wish they had, but really the reality of their situation. What are they genuinely struggling with right now? The reality of their world's Besides just the problem. You know what are uh, you know what are the other tools that they're using in this case? What are the other things that they're doing about the problem? What does their do look like? What are their anxieties, etc.? Uh, you get the gist. So really understanding the truth of their world, and understanding the truth of the landscape in general. You know what are the uh, industry trends that you should be aware of? Things like that, and understanding even the I guess uh, once you do build things, you know uh, understanding the truth of the impact that's had, and so on. So you can kind of see where I'm going with this. I think I think. If I was to like really generalize the fundamental thing that could hold without any questioning, I think it would be just this principle. Maybe there's something else. I I, I don't know. I haven't <laughs> spent too long in the, the meta clouds of product thinking. I think <laughs> great thinkers, apart from me, I think, other than me, would have done that. But yeah, I think uh, more specifically, though, when it comes to applying product principles, I think the main point that I tend to make is that, uh, and when I say product principles, I mean more concrete things like, hey, you should always... Start with the problem. I think there are lots of points around uh, saying no when it comes to strategy, right? There's a the general, I'd say, vibe around product culture, around saying no. That's how you bring focus. That's how you know, you've know you got to pull your Steve Jobs-esque persona and, and, and bring focus <laughs> because that's what builds good product. And yes, yeah, so, so, uh, I think the nuance in my head comes to these kinds of things where you have all these product principles that I actually think could go with a little bit more nuance. Uh, so maybe I can pick one and clarify that. Uh, Let's start with, uh, you know, you should always start with the problem. Well, actually, I think there's a lot of credibility to starting with solutions, uh, just at the start, at the very least. I think solutions is sort of where you can bounce ideas, right? The space of solutions is sort of where we can uh, bounce ideas, let our creative juices flowing in some sense, as it's sort of the comic side of our brains. And sure, you need to edit that down and, and, of course, ground yourself on problems eventually. But I think there's a lot of value to be set that, hey, when, you know, a, uh, someone comes to you with a random idea could be inspired by some random new tech that came, uh, that they came across or just even a new design pattern, you know, whatever, whatever may be the inspiration. I think there's, there's some value in sort of, yes, ending that. If I can use this phrase from improv to build upon that, bounce ideas and see where you can take this. And then of course, bring it back to. The reality of, of uh, problems at some point later on. That's, uh, and I'm not just saying this in a vacuum. You know, uh, a great example of where someone has done this is uh, Alexa, right? Alexa didn't start as some concrete, "We need this thing because this is going to solve this problem." It was really just someone watching. 2001 space odyssey <laughs> and then it sort of evolved from there and then someone else watching star trek and i'm not even joking like this is sort of how yeah. it went from one movie's inspiration to another movie inspiring someone else to the alexa that we see today so yeah i think i think i think there's something to be said around uh, applying nuance to these principles
0: uh, absolutely i think it's much more important to be flexible and adapt to the situation, and and use all of the different tools within your armory, rather than being too wedded to a particular process or following a certain framework or anything like that. But uh, yeah, I guess uh, it's definitely an interesting one. But let's move away from the metaphysical and into the humorous, and talk a little bit about your forays into improv comedy, which you just uh, mentioned as well. Now, you wrote an article called "Your Product Is a Joke," but before we talk about the contents of that article. And I'm sure we've all worked for a bunch of comedy products, by the way, but how did you get into improv in the first place?
1: Yeah, I got into improv purely out of chance. I think I was at alassian at the time, and there was someone who came in to do a, a random exercise on public speaking. I think they were someone from the National Institute of Dramatic Arts here in Sydney. It's probably where one of the where all the cool hip actors, Australian actors and actresses <laughs> that you know of uh, probably went to. And uh, yeah, this person just came, ran a, ran a workshop on, on this and it wasn't improv, right? But it was something to do with speaking and moving our bodies and it was just so fun. I just thought this is, this is what I want to be doing a bit more of and that's sort of where uh, I got into improv. I took a class and things sort of spun off from there and yeah, I started performing at some point.
0: Sounds fantastic. It's something that I've never imagined being able to do, but it's good to know that you can be trained to do it. Yeah. But the article does talk about how improv principles translate into product management. Back to this, your product is a joke concept. So, not that your product is a joke itself, but that the way that you build products could be very much seen as conceptually as the way that you build up these improv jokes and these skits that you do. And you call out three specific areas of the process of framing an improv skit so let's chat a little bit about how they map so first of all you talk about the base reality which sounds very grand and very uh <laughs> maybe maybe even metaphysical on its own but uh how do you define the base reality and how does that translate between the two
1: yeah i i love how much of a philosopher, I sound like uh, in these <laughs> chats. I, I, I think I'm definitely not uh, the kind. But yeah, so I think the what is base reality. So so in improv, the base reality is the who, what, where, right. So I, I, I guess we should maybe even clarify uh, what improv comedy is before we get into these specific things. I, improv comedy, improvisational theatre, maybe, maybe the general thing is really uh, creating things, uh, creating scenes on stage with perhaps an audience prompt but beyond that it's all sort of made up on the spot right you've got two three people you could have more people but they're just kind of conversing and making humor out of nothing in some sense it sounds crazy on the outset right oh like wow i would not be able to just go on stage and come up with these jokes just on the spot turns out actually a lot of people can be trained on this turns out comedy is pretty formulaic i think um uh, and not as much of an art, in some sense, I think uh, people would make you believe, I think, or, or intuition would make you believe, I think. Anyway, mm-hmm. I, I'm digressing. So, so yeah, base reality is the who, what, where. So when, you know, let's say, two people are on stage, a key principle in, in improv, that's a key thing with improv is that you have these guidelines, you know, these, just like in product land, in some sense, we have these guidelines and these principles that sort of make things a bit easier. So if you are a bit lost, maybe you default back to one of the principles and it can help you steer in some way. So it's the same in improv where you have this principle, uh, and the principle is hey, usually if two people are on stage and say they should establish who they are at some point because the audience needs to know that. They need to know that themselves. Like, you're not going to take the scene somewhere if, you know, if we don't know if we're friends or we don't know if, you're, you know, we're mother and son and so on. There needs to be some relationship there. And that's probably like the biggest thing, actually. You really need to bring up a relationship because that's really the foundation of everything. You need to know where you are, maybe. You need to know what you're doing, maybe. So, yeah, these are the foundations, I guess, you can say the backdrop, right? Yeah. The who is not going to be funny. The what's not going to be funny. The where is not going to be funny. I mean, it could be, right? It could be, but it doesn't need to be in some sense. It's totally fine if it's just a husband and their partner, let's say, just in the kitchen cutting the veggies in an evening. That's totally fine. Right? It could also be Batman and Superman in, uh, uh, you know, meeting in the laundry, uh, trying to do their laundry, let's say. That's funny on its own as well. But but yeah, it doesn't need to be funny is what I'm saying. Because yeah. the game, the funny part comes later. So, so maybe I should just compare what the base reality is uh, to product. In product, what I'm getting at is that, hey, the base reality is sort of the truth of what people are doing today with your product, about their problem, if they're not using your product, you know, who they are, things like that. So, understanding this base reality without necessarily bringing anything funny in some sense, uh, and what I mean by funny in the context of product is without necessarily bringing any unique insight. You don't need a unique insight when it comes to understanding the base reality. Base reality is the base reality; it's it's the foundation on top of which yeah the good stuff comes.
0: That makes a lot of sense. But you then talked about the game, the second part. Now I know what a game is, but in the context of improv and then transferring to product, what is the game. And by the way, just for all my listeners, you've all just lost the game.
1: <laughs> so yeah, in improv, the the game is the uh, unique insight. And so the general premise is that, cool, you've got this base reality, and then you're trying to now unpack the funny, right? It's not just going to be a boring scene of two people just <laughs> in the base reality. There's something unusual that you're trying to find. And And then you try to unpack that unusual, right? Uh, And that comes later. So that's what the game is. You need to uh, identify the game and kind of call it out. So in the case of the Batman and Superman uh, doing their laundry, I've sort of coupled the game in that actually. The game is how unusual that they're doing their laundry. Like, of course they need to do their laundry. Okay, they need to do (laughs) their laundry. What else do they need to do that's... Super common, like do they also go and get coffee just like I do, and do they also brush their teeth actually? How does that work and so so things like that so so that's you can see where I'm going like that was the game. The game was yeah super natural people doing everyday natural boring things that's amusing, and so that's the game, and in product, it's similar sort of thing where you you find your unique insight that that thing that uh is really what you're going to be doubling down on that no one else is doubling down on in some sense. Something you might have an unfair advantage on, and that's going to be, in some sense, the core cool thesis of your existence as a, as a company, as a product. And so, you know, an example, I guess, maybe I should ground all this would be Canva's base reality. Uh, Canva, the design tool, their base reality would be, hey, cool. A lot of designers have design tools, and their game would be non-designers also have design needs, right? That's their game. Like that's their, that's a specific unique insight that they had that they then doubled down on and built such a huge company.
0: Yeah. But you wrap this then with a either a funny scene or a great product depending on which track we're on. So let's go all outcome over outputs here and consider the funny scene and the great product as the outputs and success as the outcome. So we're basically, we're bringing it home either on stage in front of a bunch of people or, in front of a bunch of potentially willing buyers. How do you bring it all home in both contexts?
1: So I think once you've got the base reality, once you've got the game, once you've identified it, well, it's just about cashing in on that game, right? It's about exploring the impact of the game in different situations and heightening it. So how crazy can we take this? How crazy can this be? So What's the most in the case of this Batman Superman? By the way, I'm totally making this up as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you're improving on the spot.
1: <laughs> and, and so I haven't done improv in a few months because of startup life, but uh, <laughs> this is good to be back, I guess. This uh, it's Batman Superman uh, you know, scene that we're just totally making up on the fly. In this case, a case of heightening would be, you know, what is, because the game is supernatural people doing really, really basic, boring, natural things. How far can we take this? Like, what is the most boring thing that I do that I'm going to make Superman and Batman do right now? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the most boring thing is. Maybe uh having, a, having to do a vacuum, I guess. I think maybe that would be the most boring thing. So yeah, it's, it's sort of heightening things really far. And uh, in product, what we're trying to say here is that, hey, you've got this unique insight. And, and I think this is where I would say a lot of, People tend to uh, be led astray, I think, with early-stage startup life. I think we just talked about the uh, uncertainties of early-stage startup life and how you've got all all these things you can question. I think what tends to happen is that people sort of lose focus. They go, well, this is the game, but then actually that's also a game maybe and actually that looks like a cool game. And then they sort of spread themselves thin. And uh, just like in comedy... You need to keep focus. It's not funny if there are 50 different things happening like the game's just all there are 10 games. Like if in this Batman Superman thing they were doing boring things but then in the middle there's also some random uh, you know alien that comes out of nowhere and, and th- you, know, you know it's just unusual uh, like relationship conflicts with Superman and their partner and Batman and things like that. It, it, you just don't want to have 10 different games happening at the same time in comedy. Yeah. It's the same in product. You need to keep focus because that's really well. First of all, your resources are finite, uh, but that's really how you can have a cohesive thing that you build—a company, a product, a team, and so on. And uh, yeah, so so uh, that's sort of what you do: you explore and you heighten all the way to build a funny scene. You know, you ask questions like, "Cool, if this game is true, you know, what else is true uh, from there? Why is it true?" You try to uh, unpack this game. So, I mean, I can use uh, Easel as an example here. Our game really is that people tend to, so so the base reality is that, hey, it's hard to find the documents uh, that I need to do my job. And then I would say one of the key insights that we had is that actually people generally just need to refer to the documents that they've seen already, right? Yeah. It's not like they're usually trying to find something that they've never seen before, they don't even know exists. It's usually it's like, oh, I know someone sent this to me like five months ago, two weeks ago, or I saw this yesterday, but I just don't know where it is that was our game. And and that was like the aha moment where we went, okay, cool. Maybe just using your browser history actually takes us really far. And then we started to unpack that. We went, okay, browser history could actually go really far. We don't even need API integrations to connect with all these different apps. We could just use your browser history to plug in with all the docs that you've seen and just surface that and let you search over the things that you've seen before. And then we kept doubling down on that and we went, okay, web standards. Well, there are all these other, other benefits of using the browser it means that easel works with any app inside the browser, uh, even if it doesn't have API integration. So it works with your company internal tool, which may never have an API. It works with a funky new product on the app that you know doesn't even exist today. It will work with that if it's in the browser. So you can see where I'm getting at here. Like we we didn't know all this when we first stumbled on yeah. the game of browser history. We just unpacked that more and more, and we discovered this, and here we are today.
0: <laughs> here we are today. Mm. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the things that occurred to me as you were talking that through is uh, alongside the focus, it's almost this kind of keep it simple, stupid type approach where you just need to focus and simplify what you're doing and not try and. Because I can imagine in an improv situation, as you can have when you're giving a talk or something like that, you start to almost interrupt yourself and go down rabbit holes because things occur to you as you're going. And like you say, you're sitting there and you're just creating this almost a world of stuff as you go and then you basically find it really hard to get back in the room because it's so, you've kind of just meandered too far off your original point. So I guess, again, that does translate a lot to making sure that you focus your product, making sure that you make the good decisions around a core and not try and go too wide too quickly. And where can people find you after this if they want to get in touch? find out more about easel or challenge you on some product management principles or maybe even try and start off an improv skit.
1: yeah i think the easiest place would be the easel blog so that's double e-s-e-l dot app and you'll find the blog there or my twitter handle which is uh Amogito, which is uh, a m-o-g-h-i-t-o yeah i always came through a chat about improv or product
0: there you go. I'll make sure to link that into the show notes and hopefully you'll be getting some people collaborating with you on some TikTok improv on a channel near us soon. <laughs> I
1: still haven't uh, gotten on TikTok yet. So yeah, that's definitely on the to-do list. There's uh, always time. Well, that's been a fantastic
0: chat. So obviously really good to spend some time with you on some interesting and at times philosophical topics. Uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to The Baby Mist, or subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.